Sir Valpin, Timo Nebraska, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his debut appearance on the program, both has written for and I believe continues to write for Baseball Prospectus and 538. Certainly has written for both those outlets. He's also employed as a postdoc at the University of Chicago, where he selfishly attempts to cure cancer. This is Rob Arthur. Rob Arthur is the guest on this edition of the program. And follows, we have a pleasant conversation, one which considers Arthur's capacity for manipulating data, the front lines of human misery. We go there, we go out in the front lines of human misery. And Arthur also shares the line uh, that he's accustomed to hearing when someone's chosen to break up with him. It's not me, it's completely you. Once again, the line Arthur hears when someone breaks up with him. It's not me, it's completely you. Conversation with Rob Arthur to follow. But not, listener, before I have the privilege of introducing you to the sponsor. Have you ever been frustrated buying tickets online? Attempting to buy tickets online? A lot of sites make it complicated and then go ahead and charge you fees at checkout. That's why you need to try SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. And with baseball season less than a week away, this information is more vital than ever before. You know how buying tickets is always full of work and hassle? Fortunately, these are the two qualities SeatGeek has removed uh, from the experience of shopping for tickets. What they do is they pull all the tickets available on other sites. They pull them all together into one place. So you save time and also so you never miss a deal. And you can even set alerts for upcoming events or games and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, listener, every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use their detailed maps to see the view from your seat by way of some sort of technology, one assumes. And best of all, uh, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. Unlike the nefarious connivers at StubHub, SeatGeek always shows you the full ticket price from start to finish, and they never surprise you with huge fees at checkout. And for sitting through the entirety of the sponsor's message, what SeatGeek is prepared to do is offer you a $20 rebate on your first SeatGeek purchase. Here's what you do to get your $20 rebate on tickets. You download the free SeatGeek app, the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings and click add a promo code. You enter the promo code, which is Fangraphs. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download that free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Fangraphs today or at your leisure. That is the end of the sponsor's message, but it is the beginning of the rest of this program. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Rob Arthur of 538.com. When does it begin? Right now. I got a headset, yeah. All right. I think it should be okay. Just don't move around too much, Rob. Okay. I'll try to stay perfectly still. <laughs> okay. Very good. <clears throat> Just want to make you as comfortable as possible. Right. Right. Um, you have had – you have no reason um, – much like everyone else, you have no reason to have listened to this program before. Yes. Uh, but what I will do uh, – so when Dave Cameron uh, – you managing editor Dave Cameron, when he appears on the program, I will typically ask him – uh, baseball questions, and that's fine. He likes doing that. He's a little bit like a he's like a well-behaved robot. Yeah, and I mean that like in a sweet way. I think he would say that's the that's the case as well. Uh, yeah, 
I mean, yeah. it's good that he's well behaved. You don't want a rogue robot. That's no, you don't. That's the word. I mean, how many movies do we have to see? That's right. Before we know that that's the that that's what's going to kill us in the future. Um, but frequently, another thing I like to do is to harass people um, <clears throat> who's for, for a number of reasons, uh, I will assume we'll have uh, compelling things to say on a number of different topics. Mm. And you're one of those people. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I'm guaranteeing you have compelling comments to make, but I'm guessing you do. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> it's a, I'm going to ask you some questions at some point, and I will attempt, I will attempt to practice active listening, and I will attempt to, <laughs> <laughs> and I will attempt to work at the top of my curiosity. Okay. Right. Sounds good. But if if ever I ask you a question with which um, you don't care to answer, you should just tell me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> is this a, is this a standard disclaimer that you give to all the guests, or no, is this just no, no, no? But it's not a standard disclaimer. It's what I wish I said to most people. Oh, I see. So I'm really okay. nailing it right now. <laughs> okay. Good. So where are where are you right now? I'm in Chicago, Illinois, okay. where I live. All right. Correct. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> um. Here's here's mostly the reason why I wanted to have you on as a guest is because um, f- um, we met once. You and I have met once. It was at a Fangraphs event, what, last August maybe? Mm-hmm. In conjunction with a great um, a great weekend mostly put on by Dan Brooks. Yes, of Brooks Sabre Bay. Seminar. Yeah, the Sabre Seminar, right. And um, I – I really enjoyed your company is what I want to say. Oh, that's no, that's sweet. I, I did. I enjoyed your company too. Good. Well, here's what I want to say is – so <clears throat> I have a bit of affection for this uh, Romanian writer, Emil Chorin, uh, who's, yes. who makes um, he makes uh, ejaculations so pessimistic that they become <laughs> they become gut-bustingly funny. And uh, you – you uh, one of uh, at one point he says one of his aphorisms reads something to the effect of uh, I can only you know I can only socialize with those men who are who I meet at their lowest point ah. and I really felt like I caught you then <laughs> yeah you were close maybe like a month off but yeah, yeah you you were pretty close to my lowest point yeah but here's the thing is that th- I think there are two sort of ways to process uh, personal difficulties. Right, mm. and and I think that, that it's a spectrum naturally, mm. but one of them is to regard them as intensely personal, and mm-hmm. I, I and I, I'm sure that that has some advantages. But what I see as the disadvantage is that one is <clears throat> one I think uh, has the feeling that th- that these are un- circumstances unique to him or her when when those you know difficulties occur. Yeah, and you say, "Oh, this is this is this, oh, this is exactly the sort of thing that happens to me." But the other way of dealing with it, I think, is to recognize it that we are all universally. F- That's correct. Yeah, and I think um, the way you were processing your particular brand of, I don't know if it was, I don't know what it was. Mm. Misery. Yeah, there you go. Misery. <laughs> yeah. Um, tristesse. I think tristesse. That would be the French tristesse. word. I think. Oh, of course, you got to bring the French word into this. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, you were. You, you. I think you acknowledged it as a universal. And 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 what I like about that is that there's no embarrassment associated with it. It's right. like, yeah, I just I was trying my best, and it and I and it really and it didn't work out. Yeah. 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 Um, now I think because I think that you I think that you 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 had gone through a breakup. Is that right? <laughs> 
That's right. Okay. Now here's a question. Do you you are to the to as far as I know, you are a well educated person. Yeah, you I think you have some sort of PhD. Indeed, I have a PhD. Okay. And, and what do you have a PhD in? Uh, genetics. Okay, genetics. And I think that one thing you do you work what do you work with scientists? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I am. I am myself, in fact, a scientist. Oh, yeah. so <laughs> yeah. so if you could summarize it in like fifty words or whatever, uh-huh. can you do uh, it? Oh, geez, I, I thought you were going to ask me this, and then I had a whole prepared answer, and I just forgot it completely. No, why, uh, why did you rehearse <laughs> that? That's really lame. <laughs> <It's terrible. laughs> yeah, this is the misery of the universe that we were talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I work on uh, – well, right now I'm doing stuff on cancer. So I'm trying to figure out how this gene causes cancer so that we might one day um, create a drug that would prevent it from uh, causing cancer. Right. And now – so wait, but but you also – one thing that, you're, uh, that I know you're particularly good at doing, and I think that you do this um, with some frequency in your capacity as a contributor to 538.com, mm-hmm. is you are good at manipulating data. Uh, indeed. Yeah. I hope. <laughs> now, is, is manipulating data uh, is the, it, is that a large part of your job in in trying yes. to eradicate cancer? Uh, yes, <laughs> that makes it sound excessively grandiose. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I the what the kind of science that I do is all bioinformatics, which means that it's all manipulating data all day, every day. Um, <laughs> typically, very that, that would not make a great rap song, by the way. Yeah, all day, every day, uh, just manipulating data. Um, yeah, so I, it's a lot of genetic stuff and, and trying to see some patterns in that in that data, incredibly complicated data. No, wait, it seems I – mean, right, I'm going to get to the other point, the other question I was going to ask too. It mm. seems to me uh, two fields is the thing that you're describing to me. It seems on the one hand it requires – um, a sort of intimate knowledge of, I don't know, computer science slash mathematics, and on the other hand, an intimate knowledge of um, the hard sciences. And it seems like people go frequently; they go to, they go, they get a doctorate in one or the other. But you appear to, you appear to be some sort of expert in both. Is that right? <laughs> Um, you could say that, or you could say that I'm mediocre at both, and they somehow just decided to give me a PhD for reasons that are. Bizarre. Right. So but, one of these, uh, one of these interdisciplinary folks. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's all right. So you're you're a li- you're a little you're a tiny little genius angel. Is that right? Uh, Wait, I don't know I how mean, big you. I, I do know. I, how, we, we've met before. I'm not that small. <laughs> you're not that. I know, but I mean, like, like, <clears throat> like, uh, you, you are. I mean, I use the diminutive as, as to say that you are. You are a benevolent soul. Hmm. Or at, no, least or at least your professional aspirations are benevolent. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. <laughs> so here's the thing. So you clearly, um, it's you have, um, I suppose whether you wanted to or not, but it's you know I assume it's a product of your training. You've learned, I assume, how to how to ask increasingly sophisticated questions and then answer them uh, responsibly. Would, would that be fair? Uh, responsibly, yes. Sometimes. <laughs> Why only sometimes? I don't know. Sometimes I screw up. So, <laughs> and then it's not that responsible. But were you attempting to be responsible? I am attempting to be responsible. And do you think? And do you think that there are people who would have done? I mean, I'm sure there's someone who would have, who would have done a better job. But I think you you would have to concede, right, that there would be 
there are probably few people, at least per capita, who would be sufficiently trained to have attempted a more responsible approach. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there's not that many bioinformaticians in the world. That is true. What's a, what's something you've effed up real bad? Uh, what's something I've effed up real bad? Well, I mean, the nice thing about uh, writing is that if I I usually catch it before it pups, mm -hmm. so you don't get to see the th things that I've effed up real bad. Um, but there's certainly been some cases where like. I really thought I'd cracked projections, for example, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm getting, like, R-squared values of, like, 0.9. I am nailing this. I, I know exactly what every baseball player is going to do next year. And then I uh, looked into it a bit more, and it was like, oh, no, you just screwed up. <laughs> you, you just totally messed this whole whole damn thing up, and, and now it's it's garbage. How many, uh, how, how many hours of work had gone into it there? Um... Uh, I don't know, a few dozen. So how did you – what strategy did you use to at least suppose that you had cracked all projections? I mean, um, no, I'm trying to think of one. To divulge this <laughs> I would tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> no, um, I'm trying to think of one example. Um, I don't, mean, worry, don't worry, the, the, the burden of existence is, is killing me quickly enough. Right, yeah. as it is all of us. As it is all of us. Yes, yes. Okay. Anyway, so the triviality of what my projections grew up, um, I think that there were some times, um, I mean, I wrote about, for a while there when I was at BP, I wrote about how you can use information from how pitchers approach hitters to kind of improve projections of what the hitters will do. So if the pitchers start to um, throw pitches outside of the zone, uh, against a particular hitter, that is sometimes an indication that the hitter is uh, is improving or has improved. Oh, okay. So, uh, so actually, August Fagerstrom, I believe, who writes for Fangrass.com, um, just yesterday, I think it was, at least yesterday relative to when we're speaking, wrote a piece about Derek Norris, I think. Mm -hmm. And Derek Norris received many more fastballs in the zone last year than he had the previous year. And I, it's very possible that because um, he had a couple of links in there, and, and I, I believe he he might have cited some of your work. Did you did you ever discuss Chris Davis in that same capacity? Uh, yes, yes, okay. indeed. Okay, because because people started pitchers <coughs> before uh, before uh, before Chris Davis really began to produce excellent results. People uh, pitchers were approaching him more carefully. Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. Um, so that, uh, it turns out it, it can improve projections to a small degree. But it, 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 uh, you know, if you put in all of these things, uh, you know, fastballs, percent fastballs, and then, you know, how far outside of the zone they are, um, that, that makes us, that adds a little bit to your capacity to detect breakouts primarily. Um, so cases like Chris Davis, where someone's going from being uh, some kind of averagey hitter or below average hitter to a great hitter, um, it does not, however, crack the mystery, the eternal mystery of uh, how baseball players were, will perform in the following year. Okay. Uh, so that was that was what I had uh, initially thought, and turned out not to be correct. You didn't nail it down. It seems like I know that uh, another I know that uh, for us or for Fangraphs, Tony Blangino does a lot of work with ball and play numbers. Mm -hmm. um, both of what uh, he has two sort of distinct categories, but one of them I, I and and I, and um, I think he both he and maybe Craig Edwards recently has looked at 
and, and this is this is uh, totally intuitive, but the relationship between I think isolated slugging and um, batted ball speed, batted mm-hmm. ball velocity, and you know, not surprisingly, they're closely related. Yes. So maybe is it possible that some of the effects you're looking at, if you were to strip out, if you were to strip out some of the elements of plate discipline and looked merely at essentially like projected. Um, projected batted ball velocity do you think that do you think that that might show up yes i do all right well good i like where your head's at (laughs) yeah we cracked this thing i better uh, get back to my uh, r code i think we can we think we can really do this it's not uh it's not it it is it is so intuitive but i guess because the data sets are new and then also with the Statcast data some of it isn't great but some of you know some of it is okay and so you're sort of you you know there's a lot of I think there's a lot of possibility there, but then one must also sort of enter it with you know certain reservations as well. Right. Um, but a couple things. When Craig Edwards published that post at the site, um, you know, looking at the correlation between batted ball velocity and isolate slugging, I said that makes a lot of sense, and also the results were pretty strong. And last year, Jeff Sullivan did an amazing one. Um, again, amazing uh, for its simplicity. As, yes. if, for as much as it as would have revealed, but it was looking at batted ball velocity um, by the area, the area horizontally um, yep. at which the ball had been struck. Right. And it forms like a perfect. I don't know what kind of curve this is. It's roughly a bell curve, I suppose. Right. Um, and it and it, it it's so intuitive. And it's nice when something that's really when it's so intuitive like that is also borne out by the data. Yeah, that is nice. It's very yeah. pleasing. Yeah, and so what? So you're 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 one of the people who's spearheading this sort of thing. Um, yeah, all right. <laughs> I'll take it. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, you're going to have to take the credit because I don't know how much to give you. <laughs> I, I'm a moron. Okay. I think I've explained. But here's what I was getting at, right? So you yeah. so you have some skill. Will you accept at least you have some skill in in asking questions and answering them responsibly? Do you, will you accept that? I will. Okay. Because <clears throat> um, when I saw you at your at your lowest point, um, I, I, I here's my here's my question. Do you think that any of the skills that you've developed in that capacity help you in your interpersonal relationships, including, for example, romantic relationships? No. Okay. No, okay. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. All right. <laughs> no, the world the world of humans is terrifying and awful, and no, it does not. Does not uh, obey the the cold, cruel laws of the numbers that I play around with. Sadly. Yeah, but you seem to you seem to have, and and I'm I'm generalizing here both about you. I'm I'm extrapolating a lot from one encounter, and then I, and then I'm also making generalizations about the sort of people who are interested in, or who you know have abilities in, in this sort of hard sciences or are you know statistics, but you seem to have a. Both as uh, you seem to have a, a sense of self-awareness, and also sort of a foundation of uh, dispassion, um, <clears throat> or you know, sort of like useful stoicism that other people do not have. You have a good combo package, from what I sensed, and so I would think that you would have some social skills. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> yeah, I would think. I don't know if it's true. I'm just saying from what data I've gathered about you. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I some of it is. I can't tell whether that's a compliment or an insult. You would think that you would, but one would think. I would suppose. That's what I'm trying to say. I, I would suppose. Just... From when I met you, you seem to have, you seem to exhibit a great deal of self-awareness. Uh huh. And and I normally 
I normally attribute that to someone who, who would have you know some ease in social situations. Uh-huh. And am, am uh-huh. I am I right or am I wrong? I, what's the question? What's the question here? Are you, you get along? Do you get along get with me people? to like compliment myself? Is this you get, I'm, no, I'm asking. Do you get along <laughs> with people? Okay. Oh yeah, I like people. I like people a lot. Okay, you do. So, so there well, you go, okay. Dad. Let me let me rephrase that. I like some people a lot, and there's a lot of people that I don't like at all. Uh, one of my favorite poets. Uh, well, he's he's dead now. So one of my favorite late poets, Kenneth Coke, uh, in one of his poems, I think he he says something to this effect. This is not it at all. Or this is not precisely it. He says something like, if 95% of all p- poems were destroyed, there would be roughly the same number of good poems. <laughs> um, he says something like 98%. If you destroyed 98% of poems, that might cut into production or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, <clears throat> where would you set the number at for, for people? <laughs> uh, that's, that's reasonable. And uh, I mean, I guess there are two classes, right? Like, So there's like a whole class of people, and I think they all live in Denver, right? Who are clearly nice mm-hmm. and, uh, and and friendly, and I, those are very similar words, but they're both of those things. And they're yeah. healthy; they're definitely healthy. These this class of people I'm talking about, <laughs> they 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 like to ski, yeah. And they and they are, and they do it, and it's very it's an unironic, totally enjoyable activity for them: skiing and mountain biking. And they'll be like. Hey, do you want to go for a hike? And then their friends are like, "Yeah, let's go for a hike. That's a great idea you had." Uh-huh. Right? Do you know what I'm saying? That's yeah. of, do you know the sort of person I'm conjuring up? I, I do, yeah. Right, and those people, those people are, I think, like objectively good people. They're probably good, reasonable people. They probably help out. I don't mm-hmm. know. They probably help out with someone. They probably, <laughs> probably help a friend move. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They probably are good. At, they probably remember to send Christmas cards or you know holiday cards, however you want to phrase it. Mm-hmm. They keep in touch with their friends, and they tell their friends, "I like you." Yeah. You know, but I do not get along with those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, we have different groups of people that we don't get along with. Because I like those people. I mean, you're right. Some of them, <clears throat> some of those people, to the extent that those people actually constitute a category, right? Um, some of those people are just kind of bland and forgettable. Yeah. Others of them, you know. They're they're nice they're nice people and they also might have something interesting about them. It just they, takes a little while to dig into it and find out what it is. You know? I'm not debating. I'm not. I'm not suggesting. Again, I'm saying that I'm saying it's my. I'm saying it's me. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> is that? No, I feel the same way. I feel that, the same way. Is that with how a you, different class of people though? Different you, class of people. Did you get dumped? It's not you. It's me. Did, have you ever? Has anyone ever said that to you? It's not no. You. It's not you. It's no, me. It's definitely me. No. <laughs> I like that someone. I like the idea of saying someone saying it's definitely you. <laughs> it's not me. It's completely you. <laughs> and um, I, I like the idea of someone saying that, and then um, the person who's on the other end going, "Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, right. Makes sense, right? You're right. Um, yeah, no." Um, how do we get to this? Oh, yeah, so the people. Yeah, there's a lot of pe- people. There's a lot of people that I, – I don't want them to be destroyed. I hope they live very happy, normal, no, you don't pleasant. want any, no, you want them to be destroyed. It's just a question of uh, uh, compatibility. Right, right. Yes, that's a good way to put it, yeah. yeah. I, I don't need to – I don't need to, you know, be really close with them maybe. And that's – and it's like what you said. That's more a, a fault of mine than it is theirs. But you do like going out when someone says, hey, Rob, we're going for a hike this Saturday. You want to go? 
Uh, well, I live in Chicago, so there's not really any places to go for hikes. We're going for a flat hike. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to walk along the lakefront or something. It's, maybe? Not, it's uh, not bad. Yeah, I've, uh, I've I've seen that. That, that lakefront's quite nice. It is nice. It is nice. I do I do enjoy walking along it. In fact, mm-hmm. um, but I know th- I know the type of person you're talking about. Um, sometimes you know whatever. I I like to. Uh, I guess I. Uh, what's the way to put it? I think that. Um, there's a lot of filler activity in life. A lot of that filler I could do without. So if it's just like literally, let's go walk, and we're not gonna converse about things. Mm-hmm important things or <laughs> thing, um, then it's, that's something I could maybe do without. Okay. You know, like but, but, just subtracting that, that filler. Life is short, you know? Yeah, but sometimes it feels long as well. That's true. That's yeah. true. I have uh, certain days when um, I know that I shouldn't – I say, you know, like on a Saturday afternoon or something, mm-hmm. I say to myself, I should – because I, I have work to do. I don't need to do it right then, and I also think that I also think to myself I should I probably shouldn't do work right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked this week and today's Saturday, and I should do something else. But I haven't prepared an an, an event, an activity mm-hmm. with anyone. Yeah. Um, and I'm married, but my wife, you know, my wife has to work a lot, and maybe she's working that day. So yeah. I just uh, so I have a real uh, paralysis at that point. And I think, what could I do? I could read a book, right? Reading a book is – that is like the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it is such a quiet – it is such a quiet, act, sad activity, you know? And yeah. I, I'm not – I know that there are people who can be transported by, you know, by means of a novel written by Maeve Binchy, you know? Oh, God. I've never been transported by Maeve Binchy. No, me neither. No. Well, I don't. I, I, let me rephrase that. I've never read a word of Maeve Vinci's, so maybe, maybe if I got into it, I would be yeah. transported away. I know one time she's not. Uh, she's not like. I don't know how old she was. I think she was like twelve at the time. She she's not twelve any longer. But um, I remember she just used to. I just. I, by the time I knew her, she's twelve. She was reading. I met her. She was reading a Maeve Vinci novel, mm-hmm. and uh, it was the second time she had read it. She's oh, a twelve-year-old who loved Maeve Vinci. That's that's distressing. Yeah, I know. You ever have any? Uh, are there any texts where that really? And it, I guess it doesn't have to be um, a text. Even something during your during your career, your trajectory as a young scholar, uh-huh. um, that when you read it, it, it kind of it kind of set you set you aflame on the inside, and it sort of opened up a world of possibilities. Huh. Um, I really liked uh, Dostoevsky. Okay. I, I read uh, Crime and Punishment a few times and uh, The Brothers K. And what else would be in there? Oh, Lolita I've read like five times. Because, I really um, love Lolita. Because you, cause, <laughs> cause you love pedophilia? <laughs> yep, that's it. That's <laughs> the thing. Uh, no. Um, it's it's uh, beautifully written. Uh, it, it forces us to uh, confront the uh, the monster inside all of us. Oh boy! So I like that. Sometimes the monster is is too big to fit inside of us. <laughs> it comes it comes mm, roaring roaring out. It's bigger than our own bodies. Yes, that is certainly the case. Five times, huh, Lolita? Yeah, yeah, I, I do you, like Lolita. You say Nabokov or Nabokov? 
Uh, I've heard it both ways. I, I kind of like Nabokov. Okay, that's fine. It sounds more Russian, I suppose. It does, yeah. It, it makes me feel more um, more pretentious and stuck up when I say it that way. Yeah, like you're really nailing it. Yeah. Oh, you like yeah. Nabokov? I prefer Nabokov. That's right. You could say that. It's different writers. So you really, you really. <clears throat> I think Lolita is a novel that I I probably encountered. Is probably the case with nearly every novel I've read, but uh, when I was too young. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that that happens with the, the one I, th- I think of mostly is The Great Gatsby, a, yes. a novel I read. Well, I think I read it like two or three times by the time I got out of high school. And it's about it is about nothing that makes sense to a high schooler. Right. Right. That's it, true. It, it's about it's, it's about a what, like an overambitious Midwesterner who attempts to enter high society in Long Island. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, yes. This is totally resonant with my experience. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that's difficulty. And I, th- I, I think Lolita, uh, Lolita must be, that must happen with Lolita too. Because what, what is it, what is it, what is the difficulty of Lolita? He is Humbert Humbert. Is yeah. he some sort of scholar? Uh, yeah, that's right. I forget what he is, like a historian or something. They're, they're pretty, uh, Nabokov is pretty vague about it. So I don't know. Some, yeah. some kind of academic. And then what? He's, he's like, He's entirely – well, he's more than smitten. He's uh, um, entirely, I guess, obsessed is the word. Right. With a, with a young woman who plays with him like a kitten. Uh, yes. Well, it's more complicated than that, right? Because he's uh, – first of all, this young woman is extremely young. <laughs> She's 12. That's She's too, really I'm gonna more say, of a, I'm going to say too young. More of a girl than a woman. So yeah. they have a, a – complex and unhealthy and awful relationship in which yeah he he pursues her and then as she gets older she she does begin to kind of uh play with him as as a kitten as you as you said but um uh yeah it's it's like profoundly profoundly what's the word messed up very poetic i think no, wait, um, if i'm yeah. remembering correctly correctly when they are driving around, they're driving all around the West, right? Uh-huh. There's a lot they're of that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, are, are they are they or are they not being followed by someone? Um, or is it Humbert, just his Humbert own? believes that they're being followed, and, yeah. and the antagonist, uh, I forget his name, Q uh, Quindy, something like that. Um, he uh, he may or may not be real. He might just be a figment of Humbert Humbert's imagination. Because we have to assume we have some evidence to the effect that Humbert Humbert is um, his brain is not without flaws. That's right. Right. Yes. There might be <laughs> there might be a perversion. So so not to get too uh, literary and fancy here, but one could almost imagine that the the, uh, the imaginary pursuer that is coming after them is representative of Humbert Humbert's own conscience. You could do that. I've never done that before, but I'm willing to entertain it. Yeah. Hey, listen, good. listen. People had a chance to read Lolita, okay? Yeah. It's oh, pretty... sorry. Spoiler alert. No, yeah. no, but I'm saying it's out there. The book is out there, and 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 I'll be honest. I I I don't think I've read it since college, and I'm and I'm um I'm benefiting from this. Mm-hmm. Good. Good. Do you think that when um Nabokov was writing it, do you think he regarded? Well, no. This, I'm gonna. I have. A, I have a, a suspicion about this. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if either of us really know. Do you think that he was thinking secretly to himself, this character who either is or is not trailing Lolita and Humbert Humbert, 
um, represents the conscience of Humbert Humbert? I don't know. Uh, that's that's an interesting question to me, one I have often pondered. I read this uh, writing manual by uh, Stephen King recently. Mm-hmm. He was talking about how, at least for him, um, when he writes a story, he doesn't think about those kinds of symbolic things. He doesn't try and structure elaborate schemes in his writing, even though they seem to be there. Like you can, you can certainly trace them. And he said, like he he would go back after after finishing a draft, he would edit it, and he would sort of see the the um, symbol symbolic schemes that that had been in the draft, but he wasn't conscious of them when he was writing. To him, it was just sort of like uh, letting the story unfold and. If it happened to unfold in a way that created things like that, then that was happy. That, that was a happy accident, but it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't anything intentional on his part. So, I don't know if uh, Nabokov is uh, more was more um, conscious of what he was doing or, or not. Well, it probably at some level, and I mean, I, I believe I've heard a number of um, authors talk about to this level. I think you what you let you allow your your intuition. Your imaginative instincts to guide you, and I think that makes that that makes sense, right? Because um, you have to assume that if if you're likely to follow a certain <clears throat> line of inquiry or line of um, line of interest, then then other people who are also human will will follow along with you. Right. Does that right. make sense? It, it totally does. And if you say to yourself, is this a theme? Do I, do I regard this theme as rich? Is this rich? Mm. Then other people say, yes, this is rich. Right. Mm. But I think that's that's like an underrated skill in authors. And it's not something that – I don't know if it's something that can really be taught. Like like you have to you have to sort of just have – like you said, have that intuition of if I find this interesting, other people will as well. But, you know, I don't think everyone has that. You know, I think a lot of people – their brains work in a slightly different way, and the things that they find interesting, other people maybe don't find as interesting for, you know, accidental reasons. And uh, those people are – it's sad. It's well, you know, you, you know you, you're always going to find some sort of audience. Just It just may not be a popular audience. Ah, uh, yes. That's, That's fine, I think, right? Yeah. All right. When I was in fourth grade, I, uh, um, I wanted to – I was in spelling book D in mm-hmm. Mrs. Terry's class, you know? Yeah. And uh, I, my friend in another class, Rob, Rob Carroll, went up, uh, wanted to go to. He went up to spelling book E, which was the one for fifth graders. And I was both competitive, and I think also I was doing pretty well. And so I was getting, you know, doing well in spelling book D. So I went to Mrs. Terry, and I said, "Is it possible that I could also go to spelling book E? Because that's what Rob did." Ambitious young man. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she said, uh, she said. Well, you see, Carson, Rob is special. <laughs> oh, burn. Yeah, she right, but she taught me a good. Uh, she taught me an important lesson then, which is that, um, which is that I'm not special. But it's actually <laughs> uh, no. That's actually that's actually a, um, a helpful device while writing. Is you say, well, you know, again, if I can, if I can, um, whether I think whether it's. Um, you know, imaginative writing, or if it's if it's nonfiction, which can also, which, you know, I should say, should can also be imaginative, but even it does also help a nonfiction writer. You say if this appeals to me, I'm sure it appeals to someone else. Hmm. That seems fair, I think, right? I think the lesson I would have taken from that is um, never try. <laughs> just, just never try. It's well, not going to end well. Yeah, I uh, I learned that later, but 
in the, oh, in okay. the meantime, it was helpful. Yeah, maybe I'm just looking back on this, my adult experience, and, that, and now I realize that was just a... Was well, just why a, did you continue trying? Did you, did you have a supportive family or something? Uh, yeah, I have a supportive family. Uh, why, why did I continue trying? I don't know. There isn't much else to do. Like, it's either try or give up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nothing really can be gained by giving up, but something might be gained by trying. Where did so you it's go? <laughs> a reasonable thing to do. Well, if you stop trying, then you might. This is how I imagine it. Is as I stop trying, and then I just, I end up in a ditch, and then just people are spitting on me, and I die. <laughs> I've never actually seen that happen, and and I come no, from you know like a middle class family where I assume someone would be like, "Hey, Carson, like, do you need like a bed for a while, Carson?" Right. But yeah, um, yeah. you know, my I always just assume if I stopped, if I could, you know. If I yeah. give way to my natural uh, sloth, then then it would just be death would follow pretty quickly. Yeah, it might take a while. I mean, there and you know maybe that's the real reason is just that it would be so embarrassing if you stop trying, you know, because someone would make you like sleep on their couch or something, and then that would just be so so embarrassing. So you know, yeah, it would. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, might as well keep going. So that you don't have to deal with that. Well, so where did you do where did you do all your uh, your study where your scholarly work? Did you where did you get your PhD from? University of Chicago. Okay, and do you do you still work at University of Chicago? Indeed, okay, I work wait. at the University of Chicago Hospital. Yeah. Oh, okay. So 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 that, that's not any sort of that's not like a uh, what do they call it, a fellowship or or not. here's another word po- post. Uh, it's a postdoctoral fellowship. Yeah. Oh, okay. And how long how long is it? Can you explain briefly a, a postdoc? I. You know, I've I've known people who've been, who've who've had them, um, but I, every time I've just pretended that I understood what it meant. <laughs> it's kind of a terrible thing. It's a fairly recent invention, actually. So, um, so basically, you go to school, you go to college first, then you apply for grad school. Grad school is about a five, six, seven plus year thing, right? Mm-hmm. Then you finish grad school. Now, it used to be that when you were done with grad school, you were competitive for a entry level tenure track. Uh, professorship if you did well enough. Nowadays, however, you are required to do a postdoctoral fellowship in between. And what that is is essentially it's a very similar job to what you're doing as a late-stage grad student. You're doing independent research on your own um, with only light supervision from your your boss. Um, And the only difference is you have to go somewhere. you're, You're supposed to go somewhere else from where you completed your PhD. You get paid slightly more. Um, and it's only about two years or so, two to five years instead of five to seven. So then after that, you can apply for, for professorships or whatever other kinds of jobs you're interested in in industry. Is this, or is this a product of – did the baby boomers cause this essentially I, because there's like a – I uh, believe so. When in doubt, I just blame them. Yeah, smart, but there's too many – there's all these positions that are filled. I know that – I know that um, – that a career in academia is a challenging prospect at this point. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. In fact, that is why, or one of the reasons I am not pursuing a career in academia is, is for precisely this, um, this, this reason. Oh, okay. Um, so what yeah. will you do? So what you're saying you're not? Uh, you, you, you said you are currently in a postdoc position, but you would not be pursuing a career in academia. So what? So what's next for you then? Um, so what's next for me is I will be uh, ending my postdoctoral position sometime in the next few months, and then I will be beginning as a uh, full-time uh, writer slash journalist slash consultant slash whatever mix of things is required to pay my bills. Oh, okay. Do you know? Are you familiar with the website 538.com? 
Yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. Okay, yeah. right. Well, you, you, you contribute to that site. I, I think you, if I'm not mistaken, at least recently you've been writing about once a week. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and is that, is that for you, is it about once a week during the baseball season, or how, how does it work for you? Yeah, it's, a, it's about once a week during baseball season. It'll be a little bit more this year since I'm kind of stepping it up, uh, since I left my, or am leaving my postdoc. Um, so it'll probably be about, uh, Two article, or sorry, three articles every two weeks, approximately this this baseball season. Okay, and it, it seems as though recently you've been writing about, um, or, or you know, in the last whatever six months or so, you you've written, you, you of course you've written quite a bit about baseball, but then like, not every other post, but it, you know, you've also written about the police, for example. Huh? This is is this how, how did that uh, particular interest come around to you? Um, this isn't being a citizen. Yeah, I mean, I live on on Chicago's South Side, right? So I live in Hyde Park, which is the neighborhood that immediately surrounds um, the University of Chicago, and it's embedded in a much larger area where violence is extremely common and where police uh, police the police presence is is quite high, and there's a lot of friction between the police and the local population, um, and you know, of which I am a member, and. Uh, I, I was sort of drawn to it because we're starting to get these kind of rich data sets that we normally only see in like baseball. Um, we're starting to get them for police, um, and there's a lot there's a lot to be learned about policing and about public policy from like databases of complaints against police, for example. Um, so, like one of the things I wrote about was that a very small proportion of the police force seems to get a large fraction of the complaints against them. Um, so it would seem that if we uh, took steps to mitigate the impact of those that small proportion of the force, um, possibly the overall rate of complaints in the city of Chicago would drop a lot. So that's the kind of thing that you could learn from uh, from analyzing this data. Is it? Are there indicators about? Do you know? Are there indicators about what certain officers that would that would suggest that they might uh, they might be problems uh, yes. in the future? Okay. Yes. So, interestingly, to take this this conversation back around to its starting point, yeah. one of the indicators is you guys, if a, you, you were going out with a police officer, officer and you got yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. No, um, one of the indicators is actually if a police officer has recently gone through a divorce, um, oh. then they are more likely to act out on the on the force and, and get complaints against them. Um, another one is if they've gone into serious debt. Um, but those are those are all that's all data that's only available to the police department themselves. So I'm basing this off of statements from the from the police department. Um, in terms of publicly available data, we don't know anything about the officer's relationship status, which is probably for the best. Um, but we do know if they've had a lot of complaints in the past, and it it, te- it seems to be that it's mostly serial offenders. So if uh, if a guy has like ten complaints in a year, he's going to have a lot of complaints the next year. He's probably going to have a lot of complaints the year after that. So that might be indicative of cops being of certain cops having systematic problems with how they're doing their police work in such a way as to cause a lot of people to object. Um, so if if you could retrain those officers or otherwise kind of help them uh, not get as many complaints, you know, it would help a lot. That well, that's interesting, and it's interesting that the now what was the sort of what was from the with the Chicago Police Department's point of view, I, I, I yeah, um, what what is it? What do they have to gain by by releasing that sort of information about cops? Um, who the way you're suggesting, it seems like they're who are the cops who are like more likely to cause problems are also those who are going through 
I guess, particularly difficult life circumstances, as you mentioned, right. divorce and debt. Right, right. Um, what is their incentive for releasing that sort of information? Well, so that happened actually a while ago. So the, the funny thing was that um, the earliest efforts to predict which police would have these problems were started in the mid-'90s. And uh, there was a very forward-thinking um, uh, officer at the Internal Affairs Office who essentially came up with this way of predicting which, which officers were going to get in trouble based on the, those characteristics. And he talked to the press about it because he was very proud of it. Now, immediately thereafter, um, the union got very upset, uh, and the police officers' union, I mean, and put a stop to the whole thing. So even though they were really ahead of the curve and they had this brilliant method for detecting when officers were going to have problems, they uh, they shut it down and uh, reverted to a much more primitive system that, frankly, doesn't work very well. So that's the current state of affairs in Chicago. Um, thanks to thanks to the union, they've shut down any effort to predict uh, which officers are, are going to have problems. And so now we have situations like the Laquan McDonald case where – um, Jason Van Dyke, the officer who shot Laquan McDonald, um, had a pretty extensive record of complaints against him, and uh, he he was allowed to continue um, in exactly the same fashion without any, as far as I'm aware, without any um, uh, consequence uh, prior to the shooting. Now he's now, of course, he's being brought up on charges, but um, you know it's possible that that could have been prevented had there been a better program to detect when officers were having issues. Yeah, well, it seems like the, there's two different. Um Things going on here, right? Because on the one hand, if, as you're saying with regard to this, is it Van Dyke you said? Mm. Um, if he has a record of complaints against him or a record of, you know, of uh, sort of erratic behavior, that yeah. seems to be, that, that is an active, that's essentially, that's an active indicator, right? right? An active predictor. And, but I think, but I can understand the union's perspective too when you get into issues, you know, potential issues of privacy, right? Like mm. someone's debt, is kind of his or her own issue. Someone's divorce, you know, that people, I think you could, you could, I think you can make the case, right, that that is a personal issue that even if it manifests itself professionally, still is not necessarily the province of an employer to have, to know about. Yeah, although I would argue that police officers are not the usual type of employee, right? And like, I've talked about this before with different people. Like, if I have a bad day at work, which I do sometimes, then I mess up my code and I have or to. Or if you work for do- for dozens of, of hours and you think that you've solved right. baseball projections. Yeah, then uh, the, the results are uh, frustrating for me, but largely, unless it unless it actually ends up in a published article, not that embarrassing. And at worst, it's an embarrassment to Baseball Prospectus or 538 or whoever I'm writing for. Um but the worst case scenario, if an officer has a bad day, remember they're carrying around guns. So if they have a bad day and they uh, make a bad decision or if they're in a bad mental state, um, that can result in someone dying or mm-hmm. sometimes multiple people dying um, and a huge lawsuit and millions of dollars being lost for the city and people going to jail. It's a much higher stakes job. So I can see I can see what you're saying about you know privacy being important. For individual officers, mm-hmm. but I also see the the flip side of the argument is that they're not normal employees. They're not employees like you or me, where if we mess up, it's it's bad, but it's nothing nothing too terrible. If they mess up, it's uh, it's potentially life ending. Yeah, it's a I'm going to say I think we can both agree complicated issue. It is a complicated issue. Yes. Yeah, I don't think I would be a great cop. How about would you be a good cop? Do you think? 
No, I would be a terrible cop. <laughs> On account of the aforementioned uh, bad days, yeah, that that seems like just a really, really awful position for me to be in. Are you in debt? Mm. Not yet. <laughs> That's good. That's a good American answer. Yeah, well, not yet. Look at my job. Are you uh, are you a homeowner or are you a renter? I am a homeowner. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Hmm. That's pretty, that's good. Is it is it stressful or is it working out all right? Stressful. I wish I'd never done it. Really? It's awful. Yeah. What do you got? A yeah. condo? Uh, yes, yes. I have an apartment in a condo building, well, a condo association building, and uh, and it's a very old building. My hmm. my uh, building was built in I think it was in nineteen ten something like that, and so it's just everything is going wrong, just all the time, constantly. Um, you got I a condo. Recommend- you got an association fee. I do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I would recommend never owning property because then you become responsible for the property, which is really <laughs> horrible. <laughs> what about? What, are you? Is is the pain of it mitigated at all by the fact that you are that you are um, that you are accruing equity? Equity. I don't even know what equity is. What is equity? Well, you have some. Oh, <laughs> I mean, you're paying off. So you're paying off your lo- your mortgage, I assume. Yeah. Is, is that is that fair to say, or are you in default? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. So not- the you know, so if you were to, for example, sell your condo and then look for other property, you would have built up equity already. So you uh-huh. know, so essentially, the money that you've paid in, um, you know, you haven't lost. I'm not. I'm not saying this is definitely. This definitely outweighs the. The negative aspects, which no, you're no. which you're listing, but not even close, not even close. Really, what, what's the I biggest? I really don't understand what this does for me. What does this equity do for me? I'm confused by this. I don't know. Well, I guess it locks in. I mean, you know, it, 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 there's one thing to say about it, which is, and it's your situation is probably complicated a little bit because you have the condo fee, but it does lock essentially like locks in your rent, right? Oh yeah. So yeah. if you so if you li- if you live in a neighborhood. That you know, in which the property values increase, like you don't have to deal with it to the same degree. I mean, you have to pay property taxes, I assume. But. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. No, it doesn't doesn't even remotely come close to outweighing the terribleness of owning property. <laughs> I mean, that's fine, but I would just prefer not not to have to deal with it. So, are you going to? So, if you move, uh-huh. although it doesn't sound like you're going to move anytime soon. I'm going to move within Chicago. I'm looking to get rid of my apartment. You're going to sell your condo? And are you um, just going to rent afterwards? Or are you going to rent out your condo? So initially I will be renting out my condo, and then I will be selling it, hopefully. And then you plan merely to rent from now on? Um, either rent or buy a much more modern apartment. Oh, okay. So some you're looking for some right, all right. personalities. Hey, do you ever see Dane Perry? Uh, I saw him once at a, actually a Fangraphs event in Chicago. Oh yeah, uh, I think the two of you would get along quite well. He's he was full of wisdom. Oh, he's got he's got wisdom. He's also full of hepatitis. <laughs> I suspect him as much. I tried not to touch him. No, it, don't, don't. Yeah. Um, yes, he uh, he advised me on the nature of, uh, of, of being a, a journalist or writer or whatever the hell it is that we are. He's been he's been fired by everybody. Yeah, you know that was his that was his advice was essentially <laughs> prepare to be fired by everyone. Yeah, he needs new new weblogs to be invented <laughs> because he's used up all the other ones. 
<laughs> Although I think that his departure, he did write for Fangraphs for a while, and his departure was amicable. It was amicable. And he still appears on a monthly basis on Fangraphs Audio. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Do you guys do you guys have like a contract? Like it's it's written into it's like that, law that he has to be on on. He on actually monthly? still might receive some form of compensation from CEO and founder David Appleman. <laughs> I think he does, and I because because he has every time I ask him, he begrudgingly he. He very begrudgingly agrees to appear. And it's usually like I have to ask one week so that he'll appear <laughs> two weeks after that. So this is like the Bobby Vanilla uh, contract of Fangraphs. Yeah, it's a little bit. Yeah. I'm surprised he said Vanilla too. Man- <laughs> vanilla. Rhyme, well, rhyme. How, how do you pronounce that? I'm sorry. I wasn't supposed to say that word. No, this no, is no, it's right. explicit language. Um, how do you pronounce I, I can edit it. It's all right. Uh, I believe it's Vanilla. Vanilla. Now, wait Damn a it. second. Here's a question. Yeah. What you've provided is a clue, and I might be pouncing on it incorrectly. Uh, did you start following baseball at a slightly later age? Um, I started initially when I was let's see, about 12. So like uh, I started around 2000, was real into it until about 2006, and then okay. stopped for a while. So I don't know when this happened. I don't actually have any memory of it. Right. Well, I don't even. I actually don't know when Bobby Bonilla. I know that he was really good. 1986 to 2001. I've been just googling away while you were uh, you were talking. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Bobby Benia, so Bobby, what years was it? Sorry. Uh, it was let's see, from 1992 to so his career was from 86 to 2001. Mm-hmm. So that would have been the tail end of when I was. Uh, when you started showing, how old are you, Rob Arthur? I'm 28. Oh my God! You know. You're a lot more, you're and wonderfully so, world weary than uh, than I would have anticipated relative to your age. Yeah, I thought you were at least forty. I thought you were at least forty-seven. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, those these twenty-eight years they have they have completely uh, broken my spirit. Yeah. All right. Well, good to hear. Hey, listen. Uh, I will. Uh, I will say that you've. Um, what do we say? Fulfilled your obligation here today. Um, why? <laughs> It, I, mean, I actually, I really could go on for a while, but I feel like I feel as though I'm intruding in your life. Um, I will. No, you aren't. You aren't. It's. I'm happy to keep talking about Bobby Bonilla. Well, Bonilla. let me. I'll harass you. Uh, I'll harass you off. Uh, off here <coughs> momentarily. But let's let's just say let's say good for for now. Maybe you maybe you'll join the program uh, at some point in the future. Listen, you go. You're going to need this self promotion after getting fired from <laughs> from the places <laughs> which you're already contracted to write. That's true. Yes. Yeah, so you're gonna need you're gonna need this kind of self promotion in the future too. So let's do we'll do part two at a later date. Okay, sounds good. And, a, and if I could get one of those Bobby Bonilla contracts from Fangraphs, those are available. Look into one. it. Are you, are you not in charge of this? Oh, I'm not in charge of anything. They 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 don't even even though I think I'm what I think I might I could I could definitely be wrong. I think that uh, I'm the second most tenured writer at the site. But uh, I don't know anything about the financial health or lack thereof of the site. People will sometimes email me with regard to advertising, even on this program of which I am the host, and I immediately <laughs> forward those requests to David Appleman. I don't know how many page views we get. I don't know anything about it. I just know that I have not been fired, and it does not appear so I'll be fired tomorrow either. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So I, I just assumed you were like Dave Cameron's left hand man. Dave Cameron um, doesn't even have a left hand. <laughs> no, he lost in a terrible accident. <laughs> oh, no. oh no. That's not true. All right, listen. 
Uh, Rob Arthur, what do I say? Rob Arthur of 538? Is that right? Sure. Okay. Sure. Rob, I want to thank you for appearing in the program. I want to thank you for having me on this program. <laughs> okay, we'll stick around for one moment. I will say, that's been Rob Arthur 538. We thank him. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>